when Jane Austen was writing, that was before the age of the magazines. It was at the time of the lending library. And so she conceived her books as holes. Yeah, there's suspense in her books, but you don't feel the waves the way you do in Dickens. You feel more like you're floating down a beautiful river of intelligence and sensitivity and emotional awareness and good humor. But Dickens, you feel more like you're going into one room and then the door closes, then you're going into the next room and then the door closes. As Dave Letterman might say, my guest today needs no introduction. For those of you who listen to this podcast, it's Jane Smiley. You know who Jane Smiley is. But for those of you who maybe don't know, I'm going to introduce her. Jane Smiley has written 15 novels for grown-up people, eight novels for young adults, and five nonfiction books, including a book I've just ordered called The Man Who Invented the Computer, because I'm working on a book about technology and music, so I'm looking forward to reading that. And most importantly for today, she wrote a biography of Charles Dickens, which is pretty great. I did read that, and it's really good. Highly recommend it if you're into Dickens. Or if you're not into Dickens, you can read this, and then you will be into Dickens. <laughs> She won a Fitzgerald Award in 2006. She won a little prize called the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1992. And perhaps most impressively, she is a native Angelina, which is to say she is from the great city of Los Angeles. We moved away from there when I was about a year old. So I don't call myself a native Angelina. Fair enough, but we count those anyway. The book that Jane chose today was Charles Dickens's Our Mutual Friend, a book that I did not know existed until you recommended it believe it or not. I'd never read it and I didn't really know anything about it. So I was delighted to jump into it cold. That's how I like to read. Anyway, it was fascinating and amazing and pure Dickens. I think the apotheosis of his style and his Dickensian-ness. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I loved it, but you're an expert. So let me just start asking you, why did you choose this particular book? Well, it had a big effect on me. Now, when I was in junior high school, Seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, we read Dickens. And the first one and second one, I didn't understand at all. And then the third one was David Copperfield. And I was dreading having to read it. What was I, 14? I sat down in my parents' basement, opened it up with this feeling of, oh, I can't believe I have to do this again. And then I read it in two days. I thought it was wonderful. And then in college, we didn't read him very much, but I still liked his books to read on my own, books like A Tale of Two Cities and books like that. And then my senior year in college, for Christmas vacation, I started reading Our Mutual Friend. I adored it. And at that point, I had decided that I did want to be a writer. I decided that I really enjoyed writing fiction and writing stories. And I sat up and I read Our Mutual Friend overnight, all night long. I thought it was so good. And it was suspenseful and the language was wonderful and the characters were really interesting. And in some sense, I already wanted to be a writer, but Our Mutual Friend inspired me to just keep at it because he did. And if he could, I could. It's a long book. It's over 800 pages. So I've read it three times over the years, and each time I'm really blown away by the whole story and by some of the characters. But also, since I wrote the Dickens biography, 
And I've now read all of Dickens's novels. The other thing that interests me is how he was still developing. He was still learning. He was still trying out new things, even though he'd been writing steadily his whole life. And as a writer, that's my experience too. You just keep going. In some ways, you don't even know what you've learned, but you learn it anyway. I just think it's a wonderful book. Now, Dickens isn't always easy to read because his works are very complicated. And with this one, you have to go slow and sort of get used to it. But once you do, then you just go for it. I think a lot of 19th century novels are like that. They require a little bit of buy-in and you just have to get into them. You just have to accept that you're not going to really understand what's going on for a little while. And then it'll all make sense and put yourself in the author's hands. And I think that's a style that maybe is a little bit frowned upon today. I feel like in your books, I'm with you right away, but I don't feel that way with Dickens. I feel like sometimes because he's Charles Dickens, I'm going to deal with it for a few chapters and then I'll be into it. Yeah, I think it varies from book to book. I think that's what I discovered with David Copperfield. The first two books, I didn't understand at all. David Copperfield, I knew what was going on from the beginning and I was 14. And yet it was so smoothly and clearly written that I could really picture especially when David decides to go back to where he came from. I could just picture what the landscape looked like because of the way Dickens represented it. And Dickens was a really interesting guy. I think he was very complicated. Another of my favorite authors is Anthony Trollope. It's much easier to get into a Trollope book because his style is extremely straightforward. One of the things that Trollope explores is the back and forth of daily life for regular people. I always call him the king of ambivalence because his characters always have to decide between, well, should I do this little bad thing or this little good thing? And he goes back and the characters don't go back and forth about that. Dickens is on the edge of reason, sort of. His characters are often like Bradley Headstone in Our Mutual Friend, who's an absolute stalker and an obsessive and would probably be diagnosed with serious problems in our world. I always think he's the best depiction of a stalker I ever saw. But anyway, so Dickens could do all these characters that were sort of semi-crazy and semi-normal, and he could really relate to them, I think. So here's Trollope on the inner circle of sanity. And here's Dickens on the edge. He's not really crazy, but he understands what it means to be kind of crazy. So I think they make a great pair. They didn't like each other. They didn't get along, but they're really interesting to read one and then the other or to enjoy them both, I guess. You mentioned something about this in your book about Dickens, actually, that he's always pictured in this somber, proper British way where he doesn't smile because that was a convention of the day. But tell us about how Dickens was. If he walked into this podcast, how would he be behaving? Well, I think he would be fun. He was very insomniac as a remedy for that. He would walk around the streets of London late at night and he was a wonderful eavesdropper. And that's another thing I learned from him was to eavesdrop. So he was one of the first English writers to get interested in and to pick up 
not only lots of different stories about different socioeconomic classes, as you can see in our mutual friend, but also different regional accents, because it was a time when people were moving to London from other parts of England. The way they talked and what they had to say was different. And Dickens picked up on that. And he portrayed that in his books. One of the things I think he does wonderfully is dialogue. So you get this really amazing sense of what it feels like to be living in London and in other parts of England around the time that Dickens was alive. Psychologically and emotionally, he was a very complicated guy. In some ways, he treated his wife terribly, but in other ways, he was extremely generous and kind. But he also had a strange upbringing. So he's kind of like the guy who made the best of what he had with what he had, I should say, and did it for as long as he could, even though in some ways it was overwhelming for him. Charles Dickens was incredibly famous in his day. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, he was the most famous author. The way that the books were published in those days, and he talks about it at the end of Our Mutual Friend, they were published in magazines in episodes. And Our Mutual Friend was published in 19 episodes. They estimate that for every magazine that someone bought, they would then go home and read that section aloud to six other people or more, an average of six other people. So you can tell when you're reading the books that he has to put a little suspense at the end of every segment. So that raises the suspense through the course of the book. I also love Jane Austen. When Jane Austen was writing, that was before the age of the magazines. It was at the time of the lending library. And so she conceived her books as wholes. Yeah, there's suspense in her books, but you don't feel the waves the way you do in Dickens. You feel more like you're floating down a beautiful river of intelligence and sensitivity and emotional awareness and good humor. But Dickens, you feel more like you're going into one room and then the door closes, then you're going into the next room and then the door closes. Both styles, I think, worked for their day. But now, in our day, people expect to pick up a whole volume and read it. They don't expect to have to wait a week or a month to read the next section. Well, for a book, certainly, but that is not unlike the way we watch television or the way we today watch movies. Yes, exactly. Series on TV, which I really love. I enjoy a lot of series. And a lot of 19th century novels have been made into good series because they fit beautifully into that framework. This was something that I found interesting in your biography, that Dickens was like the Christopher Nolan or something of his day. He was incredibly popular and writing in like the avant-garde style of these serials. One of the things I found really interesting in your novel was that he started with the Pickwick Papers, that they hired him to write basically captions for these pictures, and that he started writing longer and longer captions, and eventually it became more of a story with pictures than pictures with a caption, and he sort of took over the medium single-handedly. Yeah, he worked hard when he was a kid. His dad was maybe a kindly person, but he couldn't support the family. 
So Dickens had to start supporting the family when he was quite young. I thought it was really funny that they were reading The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. (laughs) This was at the time still a popular book and the kind of book that any educated person would have in their library. And Mr. Boffin knew that and not knowing what it was, thinking it was the decline fall of the Russian Empire, bought it and bought a beautiful edition of it. But I thought to just assume that he picked this book intentionally, I wonder if this time in British history mirrored the sort of centerpiece of decline and fall, which is the transition from the Republic to the Caesars. Do you have any thoughts on this? I think he did do that. Everything he wrote was self-consciously political because of the way that he grew up and then followed by his success, he saw all of the classes in England for what they were. He didn't see them from above. He didn't see them from below. In some sense, he kept walking up the ladder and seeing what the class status was and how it was very bad for impoverished people. And so, yeah, I think he consciously picked the decline and fall of the Roman Empire because he didn't understand how the way that the English class system was set up was going to survive. I mean, here's a little quote. In my social experiences since Mrs. Betty Higdon came upon the scene and left it, I have found circumlocutional champions disposed to be warm with me on the subject of my view of the poor law. My friend, Mr. Bounderby, could never see any difference between leaving the Coketown hands exactly as they were and requiring them to be fed with turtle soup and venison out of gold spoons. Idiotic propositions of a parallel nature had been freely offered for my acceptance, and I had been called upon to admit that I would give poor law relief to anyone, anywhere, anyhow. Putting this nonsense aside, I have observed a suspicious tendency in the champions to divide into two parties, the one contending that there are no deserving poor who prefer death by slow starvation and bitter weather to the mercies of some relieving officers and some union houses, the other admitting that there are such poor, but denying that they have any cause or reason for what they do. What I think he's saying here is that he's kind of given up on the political establishment in England to actually help needy people. And that includes people who work for a living. And this is the last book he completed. I think maybe he felt during the early part of his life that he was going to make a difference. And I think by the time he got to Our Mutual Friend, he felt like things had gotten worse. And although he had gotten prosperous and famous and successful, what he had urged other people to do to somehow fix the class distinctions, that hadn't worked. So I think there is a kind of political aspect to our mutual friend, but it's not quite as strong or overt as it was in some of his earlier books just for people who haven't read this one because it's 800 pages and we only gave you a week to do it. There's one character that I'm going to ask you about now, Mr. Boffin, who is like a housekeeper basically for a very wealthy man and ends up inheriting this man's fortune. So we think for most of the book, that's the case. So he's very wealthy and he habitually gives money away to basically any petitioner that comes to him. What do you think Dickens was saying with this character? 
is this how he thinks wealthy people should behave or is this parody? Oh, for sure. I think he thinks that that's how wealthy people should behave. But he also couldn't <laughs> resist making fun of everybody that he writes about. The key to the boffins is that they do the best they can. And at the end of the novel, they're part of the happy ending because they're kind, decent people. And this is another thing I loved about Dickens when I was young was his use of names that were so funny and telling. So the veneerings are people who seem to have a lot of money, but have absolutely no ability to relate to anybody. And so there's a character, Mr. Twemlow, we see him from the beginning. He keeps being invited to the parties, but then when he comes, they keep ignoring him. And he keeps reflecting on who seems to be the best friend of the veneerings, but that's somebody that they always have just met. So yeah, Dickens is great at making fun of all kinds of people, top and bottom. This is a Dickens expert type question, because I just don't know the context of this. But so Rogue Riderhood, who is a, we'll call him an antagonist, he at one point goes to a lawyer and the lawyer asks him some questions about his identification and asks what his profession is. And he lists his profession as waterside character. <laughs> I don't know if someone in London at that time would have said that about themselves, because it sounded to me like what he would be credited as if he was an extra. <laughs> waterside character <laughs> well the book opens with a man and his daughter in a boat and their job is to pull things hopefully valuable things out of the thames and one of the things that we forget in our day is what a mess the thames was in those days in the very first chapter or maybe it's when we first meet the man and his daughter and the daughter becomes a very prominent character in the book. What they pull out of the river is a body. And I remember looking that up and understanding that, yeah, that wasn't an uncommon thing in Dickens' time. When we go to London now, it's a beautiful, elegant, lovely place. But in Dickens' time, it was a mess and he knew it. And he wanted to write about that. That's probably one of the things that struck me when I first started reading this book was the pulling the body out of the river. So it turns it into a sort of a murder mystery. But then he puts in so many other things that you become interested in what happened to that guy whose body they pulled out. But you have no idea by the end. It is a surprise. The other interesting thing was that a very good friend of Dickens was one of the first writers of murder mysteries. So Wilkie Collins was a good friend of Dickens and Wilkie Collins basically invented the murder mystery around the same time that the police force was invented in London. And Dickens' last novel, so I think when Dickens was writing Our Mutual Friend, he was toying with the idea of a murder mystery. And then his last novel, which was unfinished, was a murder mystery, but allegedly he couldn't figure out how to retain its mysteriousness. He struggled with the form because the form of the novel, as he understood it, was letting things appear and get known 
bit by bit from beginning to end. You didn't withhold information and then pop it on the reader at the very end. I've also enjoyed reading Wilkie Collins novels. They're interesting too. It's interesting that because he was publishing serially, he didn't have the luxury that we have of getting to the end and then saying, oh, you know what, maybe I should put some different things in the beginning. (laughs) But that's just like writing for television. By the time you're in season six, seasons one through five have already happened and you can't change them. So thank you so much, Jane Smiley, for sharing your thoughts on Dickens and for recommending Our Mutual Friend, which is a book that I think everybody should read. Next week, Jane and I will be talking about her fantastic novel, Perestroika in Paris, which is one of my favorite things that I've read this year and hands down the most delightful book I've ever read. And I've been reading children's books because I have a one and a half and two year old. This is the most delightful book I've ever read. So we're gonna talk about that next week. This conversation with Jane Smiley was brought to you by the Miami Book Fair. I just got back from the Miami Book Fair and it was everything that I've been telling you guys it was going to be. It was a place where a bunch of interesting people came together, talked about ideas and books for a couple days in Miami, which is a great city. I'd never been. Highly recommend. Go visit Miami. It's cool. So thank you, Miami Book Fair, for these amazing conversations. We've got a few more coming and this was a really fun one. BookSocietyPod.com. You can come there. You can read blog posts about the episodes. You can listen to the episodes. You can see who's going to be on future episodes. It's cool. BookSocietyPod.com. The veneerings are people who seem to have a lot of money, but have absolutely no ability to relate to anybody. It's so heavy handed, but it it works so well. It works really well. (laughs) 